The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Very good morning. Welcome to this Friday edition of Squawk Box. Wall Street makes a comeback from the biggest sell-off in three months, but shares in GameStop closed down over 40% as the House Financial Services and Senate Banking Committees prepare to address the Reddit rally. Robin Hood is under fire for restricting securities trade, but the CEO has defended the move, telling CNBC the platform made the decision to protect both the company and its customers. We've gotten a lot of criticism that, you know, maybe uh, there should be more restrictions. So it pains us to have had to impose these restrictions and we're going to do what we can to uh, enable trading in these stocks as soon as we can. German Finance Minister Olaf Scholz tells CNBC in an exclusive interview he is confident that fiscal measures taken by Berlin would help the economy bounce back to over 3% growth this year. There is a lot of money flowing, even for those special measures we took in November and December. We developed a new release of our economic support, which will be even bigger than the support we gave through the first lockdowns. And Germany slapping a ban on AstraZeneca's vaccine for over 65, saying the data doesn't back up the claims. With the EU poised today to decide whether they actually want to approve the jab for use across the EU. Commerce Bank wields the axe, announcing plans to slash one in three jobs in an attempt to revive the ailing German lender. Good morning. We start the show with Ericsson numbers just crossing. Uh, this is a company very much at the forefront of the 5G transformation, but uh, also worth noting, we've seen some wild speculation. One of its key rivals, Nokia, this week on the back of what uh, some of the retail speculators have been doing. So there was a little bit of movement, too, in Ericsson stock yesterday. Hard to know whether that was related to what its rival was doing on the stock market or whether this was an anticipation of earnings. But uh, the fourth quarter now crossing this morning, as sales have been reported at 69.6 Swedish kroner. The Q4 operating income, excluding restructuring charges, improved to 11 billion Swedish kroner. That is a 15.8% operating margin. That is up from a 9.7% operating margin prior to that. And uh, the operating income also going in the right direction, effectively almost double the previous amount. In terms of what we are seeing on the Q4 gross margin, X restructuring charges, that improved to 40.6% that is up from 37.1%, so also seeing an expansion there. When it comes to what we're seeing from the dividend, we've heard a lot over earnings season from a number of corporates about trying to restore that cash payout for shareholders. Ericsson's board of directors will propose a dividend for 2020 of two Swedish kroner per share, uh, this to be proposed at the annual general meeting. Uh, according to a Refinitiv poll, what we were hearing was that uh, that for your dividend, some had thought would be around roughly 1.73 per share. So this seems to be better than expectations on the news around the payout. 
Uh, uh, one quick line that we're getting from Ericsson, despite the challenges, our people continue to deliver and to serve our customers with very limited disturbances. Uh, our R&D investments have continued to drive both technology leadership and uh, cost efficiency, which has led to an increased market share and improvement. So a couple of lines as to why you're seeing this performance today. The pandemic, uh, this is a comment around COVID-19. The pandemic has exposed the digital divide and rapid deployment of 5G is a fast way to bridge the divide. And uh, they also go on to say about the long-term business fundamentals remain strong. They'll continue to invest in further strengthening their portfolio. And uh, while they expect some temporary impact during 2021 from IPR renewals, cradle point and investors to strengthen their long-term business. So a couple of disruptions they're flagging up here, but just worth noting uh, some of the trends we've witnessed in the business, very strong conversion on 5G. They've picked up a lot of client activity in the last quarter. It seems to have flown across to this quarter as well. And in recent weeks, there's been a string of announcements as well. The prior numbers were boosted by 5G contracts in China. And as we talk about this telecoms fight that has swept the globe, and something that we're hoping the new Biden administration may help to correct. It still hasn't dented the fortunes of Ericsson doing business, it seems, on the mainland market just in recent quarters. But uh, Jeff and Steve, uh, we talk about this digital transformation happening at a corporate level. A lot of it has to happen too uh, when it comes to the telecoms equipment market. And I think that's why we're finally seeing some activity when it comes to the Ericsson numbers now. Excellent stuff, Karen. Um, I think also uh, you'll be leading our conversation with uh, Bordi Ekholm in a first on interview at 800 CET. Now, um, let's talk about SAP. Everything was hunky-dory until the second half of last year when they had a bright, whopping great profit warning over at the uh, largest software company in Europe. Basically, cut their revenue. They cut their forecast for the year on profit. Uh, coronavirus cases basically said that that's depressed uh, spending from a lot of their customers. So the shares plummeted down from, I think, a high of about 143 uh, euros down to, uh, well, sub 100. I think they were like uh, 90 odd euros at their low. Now they've had a steady incline back to 108. So these numbers are very, very important uh, for SAP today. Uh, and very interesting looking at some of the early copy on SAP as well. In fact, from the gentleman we'll be speaking to a little bit later on, uh, the CFO saying, look, We've now had these lowered forecasts that you heard about uh, back in the third quarter last year. But now SAP has exceeded all of its revised 2020 revenue targets and hit the high end of its revised operating profit outlet range. So this stock in a microcosm uh, is like the, 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 the US earnings season, isn't it? You call it down aggressively and then you beat on expectations and suddenly you end up with a 60-70% beat uh, on the numbers as well. So let me just tell you one or two more little uh, nuggets of information from SAP today. They say success of Qualtrics IPO, a good reason for investors to reconsider our own market valuation. That's fascinating. They've gone there. They've gone there right into their own valuations. Well, very rarely do you get a company saying, we think we are significantly undervalued in their statement. So they're very upset about that, I would imagine. Exacerbated if they're going in there and 602 saying, well, we think people need to consider our own market valuation. That is fascinating. I will certainly be asking the CFO about that or one of the others will, of course. Uh, fourth quarter current cloud backlog is plus 14% at uh Constant currency, cloud revenue up 13%, but total revenue down 2%, alluding, of course, to that, uh, that statement we saw back in uh, the autumn last year, uh, early autumn, late summer. Uh, fourth quarter operating profit up 3% to 2.839 
billion euros. Mr. Cutmore, good morning. You've been yeah. strangely quiet today. No, no, no. Just, uh, just taking on board everything that Absorbing, you and Karen have like had to say bomb. about these two companies. And, and, and let's face it, both of them are suffering from the same problem, in a way, which is not of their own creation. They are of the tech world, but they are not rated in the same way as US-listed technology companies. And I think you've only got to well, take... Like GameStop. Like GameStop, for example. <laughs> you've only got to take a very cursory look, though, at the historical trading of, of pattern of both of these stocks. And you can see here that they have not benefited from the influx of capital into US technology well. businesses. But I want to make a couple of points. One is, um, in terms of Ericsson, Ericsson had an opportunity to really stick it to Huawei in terms of contract opportunities here. And as you look at the share price and you look at the way investors are behaving around it, you have to ask that question. And maybe we'll do that later on in the conversation with the boss. Have they taken sufficient advantage of their opportunity to step in and seize the contracts where Huawei has been squeezed out because of um, uh, security considerations. And then coming to SAP, by goodness, it only feels like, was it yesterday or the day before we spoke to Christian Klein about why SAP should be the business of choice for your digitization process? And the bit I'm still a little bit struggling with here is why Microsoft can um, have a 50% increase in its Azure uh, revenue you know, we're, we're very focused on the cloud businesses and the cloud opportunity. Why can Microsoft see 50% upside on the revenue line, but you're not necessarily seeing that in SAP? Uh, and I put the question out there, so it'll be interesting to hear what, what answer we get this morning here. Is it just because Azure is coming from a lower base and SAP was already in that? I don't think so. Can so I I'm just interested in execution. Yeah, do you remember there was a whining company, I don't know if it was last week or the week before I mentioned it, who was be bemoaning European investors didn't understand poor old European technology companies. Well, boo-hoo. Yeah. If the product is right and you have your USP, trust me, the European stock market can value your company effectively uh, and realistically as well. And I'll use for the example of that, uh, the brilliant company that we spoke to yesterday, uh, led successfully by Bernard Chalet as well. And I just had yeah. another little look at this one because have a look, if you haven't looked at the share price of this company over the last few years, it has been a one-way track. And have a look at the valuation of this company. Uh, uh, that, that, so it's, up 40, it's trading at yeah. 41 times forward. 41 times forward trades a, a significant premium, by the way, to the broader sector and on a par with some of those highly rated, more established US companies as well. So for anyone who thinks that European companies can't be valued with a premium, if you've got the right product offering with a unique offering as well, not in a, a viciously competitive environment, well, that is my retort to them. Anyway, good news is CNBC management has allowed me to stay on there despite being very volatile today. Unlike... You? Yeah, well, you know, you know, volatility, you, oh. get, you get banned from doing stuff if you're too volatile now, like right. GameStop or, ah. or Reddit or ah. Robinhood. Ah. So the good news is I've upped my margin requirement and I'm allowed yes. to stay on air. Yes, but, but, but have, you, um, have you upped your margin requirement sufficiently here <laughs> to prevent the company experiencing losses as a result of your excess volatility? Well, that's a very good question. I think my hope manager's not watching now. I thought that would have been a bit good. Oh, right, they won't okay. be up at this hour anyway. No, so. they're never up at this hour. Um, uh, SAP CFO Luca Mucic uh, will break down the numbers for us and joins us at 8.20 CET.
The German finance minister Olaf Scholz has told CNBC exclusively that the German economy has enough fiscal firepower to weather the ongoing economic fallout from the virus. Speaking to Annette as part of the virtual Davos Agenda Summit this week, Scholz said Europe's largest economy will return to growth even as Berlin provides further relief and raises fresh debt. Due to the very strong fiscal answers we gave in the last year and we still give, we are moving quite good through the crisis. If we look at the figures uh, of the economic development, we see that uh, there is uh, a way back to growth. We see that it was not that bad in the last year, though there was this big impact of the COVID-19 pandemic and the economic consequences of the first lockdown. And uh, we have some expectations that uh, for this year there will be a growth which uh, is uh, above of 3%, which is quite a lot if we understand the situation we are in. So we are relatively optimistic that with our still strong fiscal measures, we will be able to go through this situation even within the second wave of infections and even within the second lockdown we are seeing now. Um, let's talk a bit about the budget planning, because at least in my understanding, you have to come up with a plan by March for next year. And we have that initial debate now about the so-called debt break. Do you think it is illusionary to think that we can stick to that debt break, which is now a constitution? We are moving quite uh, good through this year's 20 and 21, we used uh, the ability we have from the Constitution to take extra measures in a crisis, and we have to see what will be the steps for the next time. Uh, it's obviously that there will be strong efforts necessary for the next years, but we also understand that on the middle range we will be able to grow th through this situation and that we will go back to a very um, good situation where we are at the situation we had in the end of 2019 where we, when we were able to, to follow all the uh, consequences of stability pact in Europe. But you're also coming up with more and more support measures for the economy. So um, how is the payment of those support packages going? Because there were some initial problems as well. There is a lot of money flowing, even for those special measures we took in November and December. It's now some billions that are brought to the companies. And when they give us the whole report of the losses and situation they had in this month, they will get the rest. This is now in the decision procedure of the 16 states within Germany, but it is ongoing. Olaf Scholz defended Europe's economic recovery approach, but admitted the bloc acted too slowly in its COVID vaccine procurement program. I'm still very happy that we developed this European Rescue Fund. It's really a big progress in European policies and a completely different answer to a crisis than the one we gave 10 years ago. So it is more solidaric and it's also a first step into a fiscal union, which I think is uh, something many people waited for very long. So 
Now it is just the work of the governments to develop proposals and the EU and the cooperation to make it happen that the money will fl flow very fast and soon. Um, everything also depends a bit on the vaccines and the rollout in Europe seems to be a bit rocky, to put it diplomatically. Um, so would you... Do you think that we're going to see an improvement and would you, do, you, do you see ways that Europe will get its hands on more vaccines in the short term? My view is that we have to admit that there could have been a situation where Europe would have, would have asked for more vaccines earlier uh, in the last year. But now anyone is working very hard to do the best that we get enough vaccines. And uh, this is something Europe is doing and we are working as a government with all our possibilities to support this. Uh, would you say that was a good strategy to put the responsibility to the European level and not to go um, national? It was right that Europe is acting together and that the European Union is doing the job. But if you are doing the job, you have to accept that uh, anyone is looking whether you're making it very good or a bit different. And meanwhile, the fight continues over the efficacy of the AstraZeneca vaccine. As German regulators say AstraZeneca's COVID-19 vaccine should not be given to people over the age of 65, citing insufficient data on its effectiveness for older patients. The decision comes as tensions between the EU and the drug making continue over a supply shortage and with the EU poised today to decide on whether to approve the vaccine's use across the block. I've had a bit of good news for Olaf Schultz. <clears throat> I've just checked out his age on Wiki. Yes. He's 62, born in okay. 1958, which right. means if the Germans finally decide they do want AstraZeneca's drug, he yes. can have it because he's yes. under 65. Yes. I, I think this is extraordinary. I, I think the um, different approaches that have been taken on, on the basis of scientific evidence around Europe have be, been uh, bizarre at times. I mean, we, we've sat here for a long time talking about, did Sweden take the right tack? Yeah. And now, unfortunately, as we look at the infection data, it suggests probably not. And now we're in a, a situation where, what have we done in the UK? We have started at the very oldest and we have gradually worked our way down the age ranges. And now we're in the mid-70s yeah. no, in terms of the vaccination. No, I heard someone in their 60s is getting it next week. Wow. So they, they're, they're, yeah, they're, yeah wow. that's interesting. And, and yet the, the, the German response has been, no, 65 is the cutoff point. Yeah. So fascinating. It is fascinating as well. Um, do you know much about Stockton-on-Tees? Uh, not a huge County amount. Durham. Okay. I think it's up in the northeast somewhere. I'll be honest, I'm not great. I, Teesside, of course, it's up yeah. in the northeast. Yeah. Yeah. The reason why I mentioned Stockton on Tees, because it could be the epicentre of uh, a new drug production here in Europe. Novavax shares surged in after hours trade on the news. Its vaccine is over 89% effective in phase three of its UK trial. And its American biotech firm said the drug performed well. Uh, almost as well against the more contagious variant in Britain, but was only 49% effective against the South African strain. Now, Novavax says it can produce up to 2 billion doses per year once the drug has been approved. I'm pretty sure the Brits have ordered 60 million of these ones, and that will be produced in the aforementioned Stockton on Tees. OK, coming up on the programme this morning, Robin Hood's CEO has defended his company's decision to restrict trading in heavily shorted stocks. We'll spend a bit of time on that interview when we come back and no doubt we'll have a few comments of our own about it. Oh, indeed. And the podcast is brilliant today. Just purely brilliant. It's got more on our exclusive interview from the German finance minister, Olaf Scholz. Uh, check out the Squawk Box Pork. <laughs> it's a Squawk Box podcast. I can assure you there's no pork in that one.
Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on cnbc.com. Welcome back. Well, typically we talk about volatility through the fear gauge, but uh, it's taken on different dimension this week. Uh, let's just get into the latest as investment apps, including Robinhood and interactive brokers, have introduced trading restrictions after social media campaigns caused volatile movements in the prices of multiple companies, including GameStop, AMC, Entertainment, BlackBerry and American Airlines. GameStop closed down more than 40% following the news, despite initially soaring and briefly becoming the most valuable stock on the Russell 2000 index. Robin Hood, which initially banned new positions in 13 stocks, later said it would allow trading to continue with limitations. Robin Hood CEO Vlad Tenev told CNBC trading is now going viral. We have seen unprecedented uh, interest due to the fact that finance has been culturally relevant in a way that hasn't been before, and these stocks are going viral on social media. And I think it's really interesting to juxtapose against some of the other questions that we've been having uh, before this. Of course, Robinhood stands for, for everyday investors. From the very beginning, we have stood for investors opening up access and giving them the ability to trade commission-free in whatever they want. Well, the U.S. House Financial Services and Senate Banking Committees plan to hold hearings on the retail frenzy. Democratic Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, or AOC, uh, tweeted that Robinhood's decision to block certain transactions for retail investors was, quote, unacceptable and said Congress needs more information on the issue. In an uncommon show of support for the left-wing politician, Republican Senator Ted Cruz responded that he fully agrees with AOC's statement. But Democratic Senator Elizabeth Warren told CNBC retail investors risk losing their savings in the market mania. There are going to be a lot of people who are going to lose money around this, a lot of money that they can't afford to lose. This is why we need an SEC that has clear rules about market manipulation and then has the backbone to go in and enforce those rules. Uh, graphics teams put up some lovely stuff here as well. Melvin Capital, one of the ones that's been squeezed by this one. Robin Hood, of course, uh, one of the uh, groups that apparently has democratised share trading as well. And of course, uh, being really at the focus of this as well. 5.5 million subscribers to the, the Wall Street Bets um, Reddit page as well. And these are some of the companies that have been focused on as well. I mean, GameStop, Bed Bath & Beyond, uh, Nokia's in there as well, isn't it? So a lot of companies that are being spotted that where people are hunting for the, the biggest short positions and just going for it as well. This is what the broader markets did. This is what I understand a little bit more about in many ways as well. Uh, the Dow, we were asking the question before um, we came in there, well, why are the European futures down so low? Well, let me give you an answer. The Dow at its high uh, was significantly higher than that. In fact, I think we were about 300 points higher than this as well. I, in fact, at the European close, I know we were because I was look, looking. So we're up about, about 600 odd points and then we came off fairly aggressively. It's all beer, a very solid gain of 1%. So we lost about half the gains that we saw at the European 
close. And that is why. And it's the same kind of uh, logic with the S&P as well. I think we're around about 40, 50 points higher on this one as well. And that is why, again, Europeans coming off again. NASDAQ closed up five tenths of 1%. Okay, so I have a look at some of those stocks and we'll just show you uh, some of the moves on this. Now, these are only the closing moves. If you want to see the set, have a look at the session. Just whatever medium you use, I hope CNBC.com, to look at the individual stocks. Have a look at these session moves. They are phenomenal. Exciting, actually. It's a good story. Let's be honest about it. 44% lower. Uh, GameStop, AMC down 56%. Bed, Bath & Beyond down 36% as well. Uh, BlackBerry down around about 41%. Should we have a look at the S&P retail ETF, which, of course, has been... Oh, it's over there. Sorry. Okay. Um, <laughs> uh, up 78% over the last six months. But in uh, trading yesterday, down 9.1%. Mr. Cutmore. Uh, the trading campaigns impacting GameStop and other stocks originated largely from Reddit and uh, in particular the retail investor community Wall Street Bets. Uh, Reddit co-founder Leze Ohanian told CNBC he believes social media platforms can help spark revolutions. Whether it's one platform or another, this is the new normal. And we've, we've watched the internet now over the last 10 10- years, thanks to the rise of social media and, and all this infrastructure, um, really bring a bottom-up revolution to so many industries. We've seen this across uh, media. We've seen this across so many different sectors. And now it is happening uh, to finance. And I, I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's nothing short of remarkable. And, and I really do think this is really the start of a new era um, for how we're going to sort of, uh, how, how we're going to perceive the, the public markets and, and the interaction of consumers with it. Can I say one thing? Go on then. Just, just volatility huh. can be handled as any clearer knows, as any clearinghouse knows, as any provider of the product knows, as any prime brokerage knows. If stocks are more volatile, you up the variation margin. On any trading position, you have what's called an initial margin, i.e. if you're putting down deposit for a trade rather than buying the whole stock or for an option, you can use initial margin, which is topped up by a variation margin if the stock goes against you or becomes more volatile. Why we can't just ramp up the variation margin on all of these stocks, on all of these products, aggressively to take into consideration the margin rather than banning the trading of these, I just don't understand. Uh, And I think that's ultimately where we're going to go on this, aren't we? Because um, as I watched the the story ebb and flow yesterday, we had a lot of interesting people on CNBC, but we also heard from a lot of political talking heads around this. And what's happening is that people are using this story as an opportunity to line up on either side of an ideological divide. And a lot of sores are coming to the surface about inequality, about inequality of opportunity, about the fact that Labour has not participated in the profits of the last 20 years of economic growth, about the fact that every time we have a financial sector crisis, central banks and governments step out to bail the financier, bail the financiers out. But it's it's the man and woman on the street who loses their job and suffers the consequences of companies going bust. But to pick up your point here, this doesn't have to be an ideological debate. There are lots of issues that do need to be addressed and do need to be uh, resolved around inequality. But the question of whether you challenge hedge funds in a game of wits or nerves over a single stock, that's irrelevant to all of those other questions, it seems to me. And if you just approach this in a clear-eyed fashion market 
volatility of this nature has been part and parcel of the story of the markets ever since someone bartered for an orange at a fruit market. You know, ultimately what we're seeing here is no different from what we've seen over the years with day traders being enthusiastic, the ebb and flow and so on and so forth. Just set the perimeters. Just make it very clear what you can and you cannot do according to the regulations and leave them to fight it out. That just seems to me the most sensible thing to do here because ultimately if you if you start turning this into some question of whether we should be bailing out the billionaire owner of the New York Mets because he quote just needs to make a living then I think you're treading into all sorts of dangerous water Karen. And Jeff, I agree with you. If you look back over history, there have been elements where you've seen very similar behaviour. It's just a 2021 version of what we witnessed back in early 2000. And Mrs. Watanabe, probably a term that you were referring back to many years ago when you were doing coverage out of Asia, Jeff. This was a Japanese housewife. No one ever thought that the Japanese housewife should have a role in foreign exchange markets back in 2000. But what you saw was the member of the household who was trying to invest savings away from very low interest rates in Japan. And that money went into high-risk areas of the foreign exchange market. And it had a significant impact where you saw more volatility in the trades as a result of that money being placed. This is a very similar feature where you're seeing very low interest rates, the average person not having the ability to eke out much of a return at this point, And they're chasing risky bets on the market, perhaps something they don't know much about. But they're going after those outsized returns that seeing others make at this point on the stock market. So how do you correct it? I think it's very hard to say that you can have hedge funds, fund managers, other big investors, momentum trading and enjoying all the profits that come with that. And we've been talking about how far valuations have diverged from reality for a long time. You've seen these very erratic uh, trading days when the earnings are released as a result uh, as stocks are remarked to, to what their valuation really is. But that's been a feature of the markets with all the ETF trading that has happened, all the benchmarking. But uh, we haven't seen any correction to that type of behavior. Now as a small investor gets involved and we, we hear about viral trading patterns, suddenly alarm bells are ringing. I, I wonder whether this is just going to be a feature of the markets that a lot of investors are going to have to get used to. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.